A former employee of Smokin' Joe's Corner is in jail tonight on three counts of murder. Police say 19-year-old Ralph Stokes of West Philadelphia gunned down three people during a robbery last Thursday at the restaurant in the Winfield section of the city. One-time heavyweight boxing champ Joe Frazier is a part owner of the eatery. Frazier was not at the restaurant at the time of the incident. Police are searching for a second suspect whose identity has not been released. Lieutenant Edward Funk says several thousand dollars was taken during the robbery and has not yet been recovered. Police arrested Stokes without incident at his home Tuesday evening and charged him with three counts of murder, two counts of attempted murder, two counts of reckless endangerment, and two counts of aggravated assault. Stokes was also charged with one count each of robbery, theft, conspiracy, receiving stolen property, and firearms violations. Funk said Stokes once worked at the restaurant, but did not know when the suspect's employment ended or the circumstances under which he left the job. According to police, two employees who witnessed the murders said one of the victims, 38-year-old restaurant co-manager Mary Louise Figueroa, apparently recognized the voice of one of the suspects, both of whom wore red ski masks. Employees told police Mrs. Figueroa said, I can't believe they're doing this to us. Police say the gunman herded four restaurant employees into a walk-in freezer, shot the lock off the restaurant safe, then rifled through the safe. They then returned to the freezer and opened fire, killing Mrs. Figueroa and 35-year-old Eugene Jefferson, a dishwasher at the restaurant. Police say the other two employees were not injured. Police say the third victim, 23-year-old postal worker Peter Santangelo, apparently walked into the restaurant to deliver mail during the robbery and was gunned down as he tried to flee. From Death by Incarceration and in association with Crawl Space Media, this is Injustice, an advocacy-focused wrongful conviction podcast. Welcome back to Injustice. Uh, episode 3. Uh, we continue our conversation with Maggie Freeling. We start to expand the conversation going from uh, Ralph's case specifically to sort of the greater conversation of advocacy work in general. And that is sort of our lane, right? Uh, so the other players, we we discussed Pierre Blassingame, who was also in that walk-in freezer. Um, Ralph tells us his story, where he actually was on March 11th, 1982, because we know he wasn't at Smoke and Joe's, and how he first heard that there had been a shooting in the neighborhood at his old place of employment. Uh, Lisa, what do you think so far? I think there's so many questions about how this case went the way that it went um, and why it did. Uh, it's it's interesting, to, I think, for everybody to hear from Ralph directly um, about where he was, and I think that a lot of those things could have been flushed out at the time. Yeah. All right. Uh, episode three. Here we go. Okay. Let's start to back out a little bit. If if other people start to hear about Ralph's case and they want to get involved, what do you, what do you, where do you think would be the best place to start as a new listener? Of course, after listening to your podcast, Unjust and Unsolved, that, and then after listening to this whole series, then what would be the next step for someone to take? Right, Ralph. You know, that's what I always say. Write them. I mean, that's the most important thing often is just letting them know that people care and they're not forgotten because they have no way of knowing that unless you reach out to them. So I would say, you know, write him 
ask him what he needs. Ask him what you can do. You know, that's what Lisa and I do. What do you what do you need now, Ralph? What can we do? So, you know, you could help us by reaching out to him directly. Yeah, I, I think that's huge because the when people start to look at this case and you you start to hear about Ralph, start to hear Ralph's words when he speaks, he really is a a kind and gentle soul that you know, anyone could sit down with him and have a great conversation. So we, you know, obviously encourage people to to reach out to him, you know, ha- open up that dialogue with him, and like Maggie said, see see what you can do for him. I think that's a I think that's a great place to start. I think too, if people want to take a deeper look into his case and even review some case file documents, he has a new website now that you can go to freeralphstokes.org. And, you know, it's laid out pretty clearly there if people are interested in learning more about the facts of the case. Um, and then, you know, do do vet it yourself. Like, that's what I always tell people. If you're on the fence or if you don't know a lot about it, it doesn't take much looking at his stuff to see that there are some very serious problems with his case. And then, like Maggie said, you know, reaching out to him, he, he is one of my favorite people. I never get off the phone depressed or or... or feeling sorry for myself. I mean, he just has this way of kind of lifting you up and, you know, he's been able to persevere through so much adversity and he, he kind of like, it's inspiring to talk to him. It absolutely is. Talking to him can kind of put things into, into perspective. If you're having a bad day, How, how often are you guys each talking with Ralph? Well, Ralph calls two or three times a day. <laughs> How often are we able to answer the phone? A couple times a week. Right. Speak to him. He calls He calls every day, whether I'm able to answer or not. It, you know, just depends on the day. But I, I'm in close contact with him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pierre Blassingame was the other person that survived the in the walk-in. Now, he's the one who claimed that he was shot at or they were shot at on two separate occasions during this whole thing and somehow remained un- unharmed. Here's what's weird. Pierre describes the shooter as 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 8, 140 to 145 pounds with a caramel complexion. Which How would you know that though if they got a face mask on? The, the eyes it may have specified in there somewhere that the only parts of skin they could see were eyelids or area around the eyes okay okay so he that's possible well and they did they have gloves on do we even know that like yeah there was but... there was a thing about the gloves one of them had a a, a finger cut off and then yes, another yes, one yes, was wearing like, another one was wearing latex gloves or rubber gloves or something okay so they, yeah they were wearing gloves but the, that that description that he gave, the you know five six to five eight, that describes Eric Burley. He basically describes the shooter as fitting Eric Burley's description, and maybe that's why he wasn't called. Maybe that's why he wasn't called well, to testify. That's, well, that's why I said that I don't think it's that he was traumatized at all. I think he wasn't called because the prosecution didn't want to call him because he wasn't going to fall in line. With, with anything else. I mean, that's, I've discussed that with Celeste as well. And, and that's, I mean, that's what makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, and again, like we were talking about with, with crossed out notes, this is another one. The police 
kind of got creative with their notes, repeatedly having crossed information out and rewritten over it. And and in the the statement from Blasting Game, there was a note that he had said the shooter's name started with a T. And I don't know how he got that, but he he made that statement. The shooter's name started with a T. That was then crossed out, and it was replaced with was Trent. So it went from this vague thing to a definitive positive ID on Ralph. It's this whole thing is sus. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. It's not even like they're trying to hide the changes that they're making. No. It's absurd. I think I was I was at home. I heard about it. What had happened. Then I went out on the block and I might have seen Gavin Coates out there. Or oh, I heard later on that he he had went up there. He eventually he had went up there. But it never crossed my mind that you know, eventually they would be looking for me. But I did hear they was questioning all employees and former employees. I think I heard that later on from Gavin Coates or Gregory Hedgepeth. So eventually I thought they would get to me and ask me. Then all of a sudden I heard they, they was telling, I was getting word that they was looking for me in the neighborhood because they was riding through the neighborhood picking people up and asking them stuff, then start asking about me and then telling me I need to turn myself in. So you hear once, you hear twice, then you hear more than they was on me. So uh, eventually, my girlfriend's brother, Sterling Quick, we talked to him and his lawyer downtown, Alan Sumstein. We set up for, to go see him, and he said, come on, we're going we're gonna to go down to the police station and went down there. So I showed up, didn't answer anything. They um, said a few things to him, then they said, all right. Then I left. He said, if they come and get you, here's my car, give it to them. Gave it to my mother and said, if they come and arrest him, call me immediately to get down to uh, Eighth and Real. So... That's exactly what they did. I, I would see them because I now I'm, I'm scared to death. I don't know what what is going on, so I didn't go no further than my front out my front on the front steps. So times I would step out there and I would see an undercover police car going down the block. I didn't know if they was coming to get me or what. But they would go by. The funny thing is they would go by and they wouldn't even look that direction. The one day in the afternoon, I think it was, it came and they got me. Actually, the day that happened, when I heard later on, I was over uh, my girl's house and and I heard, was it, I think was it that day or the next day, uh, they came and searched. They searched my house. So I know I wasn't there, but then when I came, I think they searched the house two times. Might have, yeah, 
even after they arrested me. So that's when I was nervous, just figuring that after talking to the lawyer that eventually they was there was a good chance they was going to come and uh, arrest me or take me back down. So when they did, they called the lawyers. But before the lawyers could get down there, they tried to ask me questions. They tried to slap me around, you know. But the lawyer, he got down there pretty quick. So once he was down there, that was that was over with. And then I guess I stayed a couple of hours. I don't think I, I don't know if I stayed a whole day down Aitken Race, but eventually I was sent to uh, detention center. So I was, uh, I was, uh, I don't even know, shocked. I, I mean, it was like a, I don't know, like, like I wasn't even in my body seeing all this. Like, this, this got to be a dream. This can't be real. Like, then I got to D.C. And I actually seen Patriots Hill. That's when I seen him. I was going down, actually I was going to the block, seeing him, and I was glad I seen a familiar face. He lived in my neighborhood, but I never hung with him at all. Well, what I found out later on when I went to a preliminary hearing, I'm sitting in court, he pops up on the stand told the police that my girlfriend said this. He went by her house, that I told him something, that I that I did it. I, I can't remember all. He might have said uh, that I wanted to do it. Well, he had a bunch of cases. And eventually, all his cases disappeared. And he was, he was out. He got out. They used him because they had nothing no case against me. They used him to arrest me to get me in jail. But then when the when the trial came around, they didn't they didn't even use him. All right, Fatris Hill and, and Gavin Coates. There's not a not a ton to say about these guys. I do want to bring them up though. Neither one of them were witnesses at the trial. They they both just made statements, and they both implicated Ralph. They. They each claim that on different occasions that Ralph had approached them and asked them to be a part of this plan that he had, that he was going to get some money, that he was going to rob someplace. He may have specifically, allegedly said Smoke and Joe's, but they both, they both made statements to that effect. So Gavin Coates says that uh, Ralph had told him that he, he'd he get a 38, he he'd get some ski masks, and that it would be easy. And that later, when he heard about the crime, he just knew in his heart that Ralph had done it. He also said later that Ralph told him about it after, told him that he had done it, claimed to have gotten you know 1500 to $2,000, and that he didn't give his accomplice his fair share. Okay, one, I don't believe any of this, but who would? <laughs> Granted, it's a different time, but who who goes around and just tells any old person in the neighborhood, "Hey, I just I just committed this crime." Well, I I think that this is like par for the course. I mean, I hate to keep saying it's a hallmark of Roger King, but 
you know, the fact that Patriot Hill and Gavin Coates were never called to testify is indicative of something he would do. He needed something at the time to shore up an arrest or shore up, you know, getting to the next phase of the, of the trial. And then when they weren't needed because their stories weren't very plausible, then they're, they're discarded and not used down the road. You know, who's on the surface, you're getting information from Patriot Hill at a detention center like he doesn't have a reason to lie or to tell you something different right or you know it just it doesn't make a lot of sense no it doesn't and and gavin coach changing the story yep. first he knows in his heart that he did it and then all of a sudden oh no ralph told me and you know this nonsense about the the money the the amount of money doesn't even match what was taken from the restaurant yeah. donald blackson real quick while while we're kind of talking about this stuff. He's another person. He's, a, he's another former employee of Smoking Joe's, and he got picked up. I think four days after the crime, when after you know police had received information that he may have been involved. So his is another case where like testimony is a mess. King completely exploited the ineffective counsel. You know, police may have influenced his testimony. He testified that he saw Ralph the morning of the robbery. And Ralph said he was going to go get paid or something. Same kind of story they're all telling. But it came out at trial that, oh, yeah, I was drunk and high at the time. Defense should have picked him apart as an unreliable witness. They didn't. And it just sort of moved on. How was that? We'll pick it up on the other side of this break as we listen to a word from today's sponsors. So his, his main goal was anything he was going to do whatever he wanted to do whatever he felt he needed to do to get a conviction if it lied twist the evidence he was going to do it another prime example when they searched the house the father had an empty box of bullets in his uh closet they might have had a gun holster no gun through the years he he made a gun, uh, stuff he would get off working down at the waterfront. He would bring home stuff he had that then. I think they might have been a 38. They might have been, or it might have been smaller. I can't remember. But they was empty. The box was empty. It had a, it had a receipt or the address on it, Cinnamons in New Jersey. And he he tried to. My father said it was his uh, a gun, empty gun holster. There he said my father said he got him from uh, I think a friend or over New Jersey or something. And he outright told the jury that my father was lying. Matter of fact, he said he got him from somewhere over New Jersey. Maybe it was his. Maybe it was Cinnamonson. But when he checked with the ATF, the ATF said, you know, they couldn't they couldn't prove that this was purchased that, that it or was it. But he told the jury he had evidence to prove that my father was lying, which in fact he was lying. He was lying. And so they found this evidence in two thousand four. So to discredit my witness he made it he told a lie you know so he outright then made my my father look like he was lying to the jury you know which he wasn't 
So he had no problems doing that kind of stuff. And I knew then, because I heard about him already, but I knew then for something that's supposed to be so small that if you was willing to do that, then you was willing to do anything. He looked right in the jury's face and said he was lying. He was willing to do anything, you know. As we learned later on, the other stuff, the sneakers and all that, Jimmy Dennis' case, other cases, a pattern over and over him doing this, taking evidence, contacting places, tell them to disclose uh, the Wick Crawley case, tell them to, to, to get rid of evidence, uh, drop of a case so we knew he was willing uh, to do anything uh, so we're still on the trail trying to trying to find other stuff that we know is missing but with these lawyers you fight the DA's office you, and these lawyers that I deal I have uh, you don't have no money to get your own attorney, then you are, you got to deal with the best hand you got. Leonard Wells. Leonard Wells is the brother of Eric Burley. So he placed an application for reward money. And in it, this is the statement that he makes. Quote, I also gave police a holster that belonged to Donald Jackson which he left at my house. This was the holster for the automatic, the gun that was not the murder weapon and therefore linked Stokes to the revolver. End quote. Needless to say, Leonard Wells, I don't think, spoke that way. Fatress Hill and, and Gavin Coates are listed in this application as the individuals who furnished this info to him. Um, you know, two people <laughs> who were who were at one time or another, potential suspects. Wells' statement to the police contradicts his own brother about who had which gun when Jackson, Burley, and Ralph allegedly came to the Burley-Wells house just after the robbery. And, and I mean, just after. His, his statement and testimony are so, are so incredibly coached. He testified that they, they came by his house a little after 2 o'clock. This crime happened, like we said, between 1 and 1.30. He further states that, quote, I don't know exactly what time it was. It was approximately 11 after 2, end quote. <laughs> that sounds like you know exactly when it was, or, right. you're make, or you're making up the story. I mean, I just can't imagine, like, reading this or hearing any of this and giving any believing any of this is credible whatsoever yeah agreed when wells testified at jackson's trial he says that his brother told him quote that he was involved in smoke and joe's and this is he then gets cut off and his statement was stricken from the record so all of these there's all these red flags and we didn't even get into, and I probably should, Wells gave police permission to search his car, which they did, and in doing so, they found a couple of shells, 
and, and some other stuff. What they didn't bother to do was to find out that the 1973 Oldsmobile that they searched was, in fact, stolen. Wells was a prolific car thief. All of this, and they still gave him $2,000 reward money. There's so many holes in this case. But it goes to show you that they didn't care about any of the problems in the case. At the very beginning, they decided who did this, and everything that created a problem for that narrative, they ignored, or they coerced, or they fixed it in a way where they could get this to fly in front of a jury. Yeah. March 11th, do you remember what you were doing? I was home. I was actually home. A girlfriend, my mom had to go somewhere. So my little sister was there. So my girlfriend came over and she watching my sister. So uh, I was home. I went to, went up the street, went to the cleaners. I went to a, a corner store. Asians have owned it. They both told my lawyers, the lawyers, investigators went to see them that they see me. I was I was right there in that vicinity at the time this happened. And then my friend on my block, Michelle Dennis. So she see me as I was going back down the block and she was going up the store. She went somewhere to the store, came back and I was out I was out front, in front of my house when it happened. She testified testify. I don't know why the um, the lawyer, Malcolm Walden, decided not to use them. It was Paul's Cleaners in that uh, corner store. Somebody named Alvin used to own it. He did own it, but they was running it for him. So he went to see them and they told him that uh, yeah, they I was I was there. I was, uh, they see me, but the lawyer decided, I can't even remember what he said, he decided not to use him. I don't know if they end up getting cold feet. Uh, he might have had statements, too, from the mouth of Walter. On the next episode of Injustice, July 22nd, 1982, Ralph Trent Stokes is found guilty. Three counts of murder in the first degree and other related charges. He is sentenced to death. All the articles just paint him as just like this monster, which is how usually how it is for these older cases. There is no presumption of innocence, really. No. During the investigation, a search warrant gets issued to search Ralph's family's home. And they took my brother's sneakers, the sneakers and the pail of water, took it to test for gunpowder, blood, and barbecue sauce. I guess tomato sauce or barbecue sauce had spilled over, and it was footprints in it. During the course of that search, the police find a pair of sneakers soaking in a tub with the hint of a chlorine smell, and that's that's it. How did you get started in this? I know, I know Lisa's origin story. She was sitting at home watching 48 Hours, 
and got drawn to it through a case there. How did you initially become interested in this type of work? Through Suave, through meeting Suave and and working on a podcast about juvenile lifers. In his application for habeas corpus that was issued in 2004 and is still pending today. What do we want to say, Lisa? That's unheard of. It's unheard of. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable that you have a habeas petition pending for 17 years. Why? I mean, let's just take the piece of, of Roger King lying to the jury and the fact that he's still sitting in prison after all of this is uncovered and after we now know what Roger King really was, no instrument of justice, he was a liar and a fraud. It's disgusting to me. It just makes you feel like it's really extra tragic that this like very kind, caring soul never got to give that to the world. So what Lisa was just saying is that this work can, can get heavy a lot of the time. What do you do to sort of keep your head right when, when this type of work can bog you down a little bit? I don't know. I call Lisa and scream. Like, I don't know. (laughs) All right. That was episode three. Uh, Lisa, take us home. So for today's call to action, we would like to ask you to visit freeralphstokes.org and go to the How You Can Help page to sign Ralph's uh, change.org petition. Yep. Um, All right. That's it. That's the show. Thanks for listening. Bye. Justice Podcast is brought to you in association with Death by Incarceration. Thank you to Crawlspace Media. Sound design, audio post-production, Jason Usry. Special thanks for original music to Bernaldo Rivaldi. Check out all his great stuff on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp, wherever you get your music. Please support independent artists. Right now is a, a real tough time for creatives. Go to InjusticePod.com for more information, including what are the great podcasts we are listening to. You can also find information to contact the hosts directly there. General inquiries can go to info at InjusticePod.com. Thank you for listening. This has been an Injustice production. Injustice.